0: For this session, thank you because your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We see light because we see you, we see our way because you revealed in your word. We pray, oh Lord, together right now that as we study, our hearts are enlightened, your word makes sense, to you, um, and that we're able to use everything we learn to your glory and to your praise in Jesus' mighty name, amen. All right, so if you haven't guessed, I'm not at my house. I'm far away from my house right now, Um, but I want it to be available to still um, the scriptures. Uh, Let's do a recap. If you're joining for the first time, welcome. Hi to you. Um, But let's get into what we've learned so far. I'll try and do a very brief summary of everything and then walk us to where we are right now. The very big picture here is Paul was writing a letter to the church in Rome, to Romans, and basically to um, to give them an idea of what the gospel is and what it's not. Um, and he starts by making his thesis in verse 16 of chapter 1, saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ Jesus. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile. And I've talked about the distinction between the Jews and the the Jews had already. They had the law of Moses. They grew up with the oracles of God, prophets. They had all these special people given to them. They were the ones through whom the Messiah was to come and who did come through them. Right. So that's the Jews. The Gentiles are everyone outside of the covenant of God. People who God didn't really, in a sense, care about at the time. Um, He just dealt with the people of Israel who are the Jews. And Paul is now saying, oh, no, the gospel is the good news of salvation to everyone, not to just those who have the law, but those who didn't have the law. So it's, it's good news to everyone. Everyone God has created. Powerful stuff. And then we start to go downhill. Paul takes us on a journey to see why we even have to hear good news in the first place because there is bad news. The bad news is we are all sinful people. So he takes the whole of chapter two, the end of chapter one, beginning of chapter two, chapter three, to emphasize that both Jew and Gentile were all guilty before God. No one can escape the just punishment of God, all right? His standard is higher than, and if we try to escape it, we won't be able to Um, Then we come to chapter four, where Paul is now trying to tell us about this gospel, the way out, and shows to us that Abraham and David were people who experienced this, even though they were not born in our day or time. They were ancient heroes of faith, right? But one thing you realize about them is they looked forward to this promise. And this promise was God imputing righteousness to guilty sinners, like mind-blowing stuff. Everyone had thought you have to fo- follow the law, hook, line, sinker to be saved. But now a righteousness, a new kind of righteousness is revealed. And it's the kind of righteousness God gives to you without you working, without you trying to earn it or labor for it. Like it's something that someone else might have been working their whole lives for. Just like Paul himself, he followed the law sinker. He sinker. He kept it. He said it was a Pharisee of Pharisee. But when the gospel of Jesus Christ came to him, when he understood that God imputes righteousness to those who put their faith and their trust in what Jesus did on the cross, it changed his entire life and it should change our, our lives. A lot of people today still think God relates with us based on our performance. And that's sad. That's wrong. God behaves justly. God relates with based on his justice. The question is, has his justice been delivered? Yes. On whom? On Jesus Christ. He took your place, he took your punishment, which is the whole idea of Romans chapter 3, Jesus being the propitiation, and Romans chapter 4, Jesus becoming that, you know, just basically being that person who made it possible for us to legally call us guilt-powerful so we can have eternal life, not because we are living very perfect lives every day, or because we are putting our trust in the one who lived a perfect life. That's the gospel of Jesus. And so he comes to chapter five and tells us even more beautiful stuff, that we have peace with God. We have access to the throne of God. Unlike people who lived before us, who lived under the law, we are not, no longer under the law. So we have access to God, the father himself, and he's no longer angry with us. And that the trials we go through actually, Help us get better. It doesn't work against us. It works for us. And then we get to see how that happens. It's because, first of all, we all fell. We all sinned. And how did that happen to everyone? Well, it was our forefather, Adam. Adam ate the forbidden fruits, like we all know. And we all have to share in his disobedience. Because of one man's disobedience, Romans 5 says, we are all made sinners. But in Contrast to that, Jesus now obeys God. So Jesus' obedience as a man, the second Adam, replaces all that the first Adam has done. So if you put your faith in that second Adam, you become the righteousness of God in him. So that's the story. Romans 5 tells us, sin came to, through through one man, grace and truth and righteousness and abundance of the abundance of righteousness. Um, there's a way the Bible actually says it's much more abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness came through one man, Jesus Christ. So that begs the question. So if we don't have to worry about this sin problem anymore, since Christ has made us righteous by all we need to do is believe in what Jesus did. We don't have to keep all the rules and regulations necessarily to be saved. All we need to do is trust in what Jesus has done. Then someone might ask. Can't we just keep living in sin so that grace will abound? And that's why the question in Romans 6 appears. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul is like, hey, hold up a second. We are dead to sin. So he takes the whole of chapter 6 to explain what it means for us to be dead. And I've taken time to explain this before. There's a spiritual operation called baptism. And we're not talking about baptism in water, which is a common idea. But there's a biblical doctrine called baptism. It means to be immersed, to be dipped into. But more specifically, it's the supernatural means through which everything Jesus has, we become beneficiaries of. Because by birth, we belong to Adam. Think about by birth, we belong to Adam. The punishment Adam deserved, we are receiving it. We all die, right? So the destiny of the normal natural is to die. But then there's another man who defeats death, Jesus Christ. He comes, walks the earth, lives a perfect life. Now he has to die because he has to take the punishment of human beings. All right. And he himself is a man. But then he is resurrected to prove that death has been defeated. So this second man comes back to And so that whole thing alone just distinguishes him from every other man that's ever lived. So the question is, how do we become part of that kind of man and not the old man, which is Adam? Well, that's the whole idea of being born again, right? So you were born of Adam, but now you have to be born a second time, meaning you need to experience a new kind of life. In in other words, you have to die and be born again, which is the picture that we see in baptism. So baptism... You know, if you see someone who is baptized in water, it's kind of symbolic. You put the person inside water, it's like they're going to drown. And then you bring them up and all of a sudden they have a new life. Everything is bright. Everything is new. You know, they are cleansed in a sense. That's what basically happens in the spirit. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you die to sin, just like Jesus died to sin and was raised up to life, just like you will be raised up to life as well. So that's something Paul is trying to emphasize. We cannot go on sinning because we are dead to sin. sin is no sin no longer has dominion over us. we are not slaves to sin. so those are the two key points he's gonna bring up in Romans six. First point is we can't we don't need to keep living in sin because we're no longer slaves to sin and then he goes and asks the same question in verse fifteen he says. What then? Shall we sin because we are no longer under the law, but under grace? That's such a powerful question. It's like, because you're not under the law, and the law is not going to be held against you, um, what's going to happen? Should we just keep on sinning? And he says, no. Like Basically, Paul is saying that is just very stupid, because you become a slave or a servant to whoever you obey, whether it's sin or righteousness. So in the past, when you were not saved, when you did not believe in Jesus, you were a slave to sin, you did not there was no um like your natural pr- predilection was to sin. it was natural in fact, you got good at it, you got better at lying, you got better at cheating and deceiving people that that was your niche, right but when you get saved, if you truly receive a new life in Christ, if you experience that supernatural baptism which happens when you put your faith in Jesus. Then you have new desires, not immediately. You don't just stop sinning altogether, but you start to have new desires that are God word. Like, how can I please you? I don't just want to live anyhow. I don't just want to fornicate. I just don't want to, you know, break all the rules. I don't want to steal anymore. That's the Christian life. It's like, I don't want to do those things anymore. It's not God forcing you to follow a set of rules. You're now living faith and not by the law. You're now living by the spirit and not by the letter. That's God's design. So Paul says, "Whoever you yield yourself servants to obey, you become servant of thing. Whether it's sin or righteousness. So just he's basically saying, "Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? That means shall we continue to live in habitual sin? He says, "No, you are dead to it. So habitual sinning is not something that should have a hold over you. Sin has no dominion over you. All right. But then the second question. Is phrased differently. It's shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? This one is talking about not habitual sinning, the idea of actually committing acts of sin, like random daily acts of sin. So it's not talking about the habitual practice, but now, like, are we slaves, to actions of sin as well? He says, no. He says, this is your responsibility if you yield yourself, servants, um, to sin, then you become servants to sin. If you yield yourselves to be servants to righteousness, then you become servants to righteousness. That's Paul's theology here, that you have a choice now as a Christian to say no to sin. In fact, Titus tells us, Titus 2 from 11 to 14, he says the grace of God has appeared to all men, right? That brings salvation to all men has appeared. He says it teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly love and that we should live sober lives in this present world. So there is a calling from and a calling into. So God calls you out of sin and calls you into a life of righteousness. Now, there is no such thing right now in, on this earth as sinless perfection. That's something we're going to experience in our new glorified bodies, amen. But right now, what we have is the spirit that helps us say no to the flesh. So we kill and keep killing sin every day. In fact, I think it was John Owen that said this thing, I'm about to say, I think it might be him. He said, Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. It's, it's it's just the Christian life. You must mortify the deeds of the body. In fact, that's what Paul teaches in Romans 6. That I was just reviewing here. If you if you go all the way to um verse 13, verse 12, actually. Romans 6:12, it says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it in your lust or in its lusts and do not present your members. He said, do not, it's you present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. So legally something has happened. You've been taken from death to life, but as a result, now you have a responsibility to present your members as instruments of righteousness and you have to present yourself as being alive made alive from the dead which is your spiritual reality all right and then he ends with verse 14 which I think is something you must meditate on and repeat boldly for sin shall not have dominion over you you're on you're not under the law the law is where dominion of sin abounds but you're under grace where sin should be easily defeated the very key so It ends with verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Ladies and gentlemen, eternal life is God's idea. God, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can have assurance that you're not going to perdition or to hell. You're going to heaven. Why? Based on your actions? No, based on what you did. It's so important that we get that right. And then we move to chapter seven, but I want to give you, you know, just a short break to pause and think, and then we'll continue. The, what I want you to think on is what has changed in your heart or in your mind concerning sin and righteousness. Some of you may have had the wrong ideas before, thinking that um, you know your righteousness is based on what you are able to do rather than what God has done. That's something you have to renew your mind. And then maybe you thought sin was the indif- undefeatable and indestructible in your life. Well we see the word correcting us now that we're dead to sin. So something to meditate on. So let me give you some time to meditate on that. Um and then we'll go ahead to chapter seven. Well, yeah. So but I don't so know what's going on. I learned that or you re-emphasize what I righteousness and that it's possible to live in. So I really appreciate it. it is you just have to acknowledge it. Um, emphasize on it by putting down the flesh and saying what God said. over. Even if you're still experiencing it, it does not mean it's not your reality that your death is sin. It's just what it's still your reality that your death is sin. So you just need to that's what I learned. just need to remind yourself and believe above the flesh by okay. staying in the world or something. Just I get my gist. <laughs> All right. So hope you had a good time just pausing to think about that. As we jump into Romans 7. Now, Romans 7 is very exciting. Um, I'm always very excited when I start going to this other side of the book of Romans. In fact, we've, what we've done so far has just been child's play, <laughs> child's play, and very foundational to everything else we're going to be learning together. So we've built that foundation. We, we know who we were, what we've done, the punishment we deserve, what God did instead. And what we've been called to be and to do in a sense. But now we're moving forward to learning a little bit more about what it means now that we have newness of life. And Paul is about to explain that even in more detail, more specific, um, giving us examples from the law, giving us examples from observation and everything. So we're going to pay attention um, and learn something powerful here. So. Romans 7 starts very boldly with an example from what the Jewish person should understand. It's a story or it's a concept in the law that the Jew would understand. And Paul is about to use that to explain um, w- w- what God did in separating us from our sin in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's read it together. Romans chapter seven from verse one. He says, or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. That law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. That's the question. Now, the the, the Greek word here is nomos. The, the Greek word for the word law is nomos. Now, in some cases, you see the law, which is specific to a kind of law. So it could be the law um, of Moses. It could be the, the law, the principle of something, Right. But now here we just see the word nomos without the um, article the, that tells us something when it says that law has dominion over as he lives. He's talking about principle. It could be the law, but this is uh, the law. It could be sometimes could refer to specific laws, but here he's referring to law generally, like principle. Principles will operate as long as a man is alive. So he's trying to teach us something about how, things should do, how things work. And so the example he gives is, for a woman who has a husband, verse 2, is bound by the law to her. um, She's bound to the law by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. Pay attention to this. This is very important. Verse 3. So then if while... Her husband lives she marries another man she will be called an adulteress but if her husband dies she's free from that law so she's no even though she has married another man wow this is powerful stuff so the concept is when a man is married to a woman if the woman goes to another man while she is still married to this man who is alive she's an adulteress but if this man dies and then she marries again. She's no longer an adulteress, even though she's marrying another. So that is Paul's way of describing what happened to us. This is deep. Look at how Paul goes ahead to explain what he just described. He says, "Therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ." Mm-hmm. So he's saying just the same way the law does not is not binding on a dead man, right? To be so, the woman is to marry another person. Because the man is dead, and that law doesn't bind that woman to that man permanently if he's dead. That's the same way we are dead. So he says we are dead to the law through the body of Christ, so that we can be married to another. So, in a sense, we have died to, so that marriage to another husband is possible. And in this case, what is the other husband? It's marriage to Jesus. So. The life of the spirit, you know, um, that song, I am married to Jesus, Satan, leave me alone, could not be further from, um, I mean, closer to the truth. I, it's, it's really, really accurate if you understand the context. Of, um, so he says that you may be married to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. Now, listen, you are married to Jesus for the purpose of bearing fruit. In other words, you have been separated from your sinful nature. You are dead to sin. You're not bound by the law to live a life on. You are dead to the law. The law has no dominion over you anymore, right? And so that's why you can have a new partner, a new husband. In this case, you have moved from submission to sin, being a slave to sin, to being now a slave to righteousness, bearing fruits that bring glory to God. It's so, so beautiful. And then look at verse but when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, comparison, we were once in the flesh, we are no longer in the flesh. So a Christian should not say, you know, I'm in the I'm 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 in the flesh, or you know, a lot of Christians say a lot of things that are just so not true. I know on one hand, we want to exalt our humanity and say, you know, we're not better than others. And I and I understand what that means. You know, people want to just be able to say, I'm just like you we the same, you know. I tend to do that sometimes when I'm preaching to someone. I just let them know, hey, all the sins you're about to list, I've done them, and there's no difference between us. Um, and in one sense, that's true. The one major difference between me and a sinner, that someone who hasn't put their faith in Jesus, is that fact. They haven't put their faith in Jesus. That's the major difference. But that's not the only difference, because we are quick to just, make that the only difference that, Oh, because we believe that's why we're not like them. And if they believe to, you know, then that equals that um, equals the playing field, but there's more. So it's not just, um, saved by grace. It is empowered to live life of holiness. You must always carry that. Jesus didn't save you for the sake of just saving you. He saved you to bring you into a life. So, You die to self, you die to sin, you are buried, you are risen and raised up together with Christ. For what? Unto a newness of life, for works. Look at that again. I'm going to read it. It says that you may be married to another. So you're not just separated from your first husband. All right? You are married to another. That second part must not be exempt. It must not be removed from the equation. It says you are married to another. Who? To Christ. To Christ so that we should bear fruit to God. That's the goal, all right? So in verse seven, in verse five, sorry, he says, for when we were in the flesh, right? He says the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. Remember, we're dead to the law and to to that, the power of the law. We're no longer under the law. So he says, because when we're under the law, we were subject to these sinful passions, they were working our members, they were causing us to bear fruit to death. So here's what he's saying. Have you been in a situation where, you know, some of you will know this very well because if you've lived in Nigeria, you know all those walls. Uncle, I have the image in my head, all these uncompleted buildings, you know, and they don't want you to, they don't want guys to urinate um <coughs> at that place. So they write something on the wall. I wish I could get feedback. It's just that this is recorded, but you can still put that in, put in the chat. What are the, some of the things people write on the wall to uh, dissuade people from urinating? Sometimes they even misspell it. They write, do not urinate here. And all of a sudden, a place that was no not an option for urination, like people weren't thinking about doing it just because they see a law saying do not, all of a sudden, it's an awakening. <laughs> Sinful passion was aroused by the law, just like Paul said. And that's just an example to show you that when the law comes and it matches up with sinful man, it's a disaster. The law is a mirror. It shows you. So you might think you're a good person, but when you stand in front of the mirror, the mirror just reveals your character. Any law, any instruction shows the rebellion. <laughs> that's, the, that's the purpose of the law. The law was never given to um, make you righteous with God. The law was never meant to make you fall in line and be holy. The law itself is holy, as we're going to say, but that was not something it could achieve. What the law could not do, because it was weak through the... God did in Christ Jesus. (laughs) This is very profound. So just the same way, people who didn't care to urinate in a specific location saw a huge red spray on the wall, do not urinate here or chalk, or whatever it is they used in those days. I don't remember what it is. You know, they would go there and they would urinate. And he's like, why? And, you know, guess what? How do you stop that from happening? Take off that law, remove it from there. And over time, people will not see a need to do that. I remember the story that one of my my favorite teachers back then mentioned. Um, He said, just a similar example, you know, he mentioned how one of his friends... um, Invited some kids over. So they had some kids. Other families, they were in this house. There was this garden at the back. So the parents were in the front. They told the kids, you kids go play at the back. But whatever you do, kids, (laughs) don't touch that red flower over there. Now, these kids were, you know, playing and having fun and going around. But immediately that law was made. Don't touch that red flower over there. What these kids did not see before became very apparent. They saw it, and all of a sudden, something within them made them, like the whole purpose of them playing at the back was to finally get to touch it, to see who would touch it. And the conversation was always around. Mom said, don't touch it. But she didn't say, we can't blow it. <laughs> you know? So that's what the Lord does. The Lord just reveals the 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 dirtiness within us. It, it reveals the weakness in our flesh. And so we are, God doesn't want us to live that. Because the law only just becomes more. And God doesn't want us. So he says in verse 6. But now there's always that contrast. You lived in the flesh. The sinful passions of the, of the flesh. But now we have been delivered. Hallelujah. We've been delivered from the law. Like, I don't know. But maybe you, you don't. You've not heard the groups in the Christian faith today. There are so many people who are so adamant that the law is still for the believer today for the sake of righteousness. And I don't know what Bible they are reading because these are not loose or careless statements by the Apostle Paul. Paul is saying we have been delivered from the law. The law needs being delivered. That means that it was not the ideal way for anyone to be made right. If God's goal is to make people right with if let me rephrase that. If the law was the purpose, um, or the purpose of the law was to make people right with God, Jesus would not have had to come. But the law couldn't do that. All the law did was show the standard of God and show your weakness, so that you will now need the real soul, which is God stepping in to the flesh, taking on human paying the price, living a perfect, and dying. And then being raised from the dead, we cannot live the life that he lived. That's the goal. So it is not the Lord that saves. It is not the Lord that purifies. It's not the Lord that makes right. It is grace, Jesus' work, his sacrifice that pays. It's something to meditate on. It's something to make. So he says we should not serve in the oldness of the letter, but in the newness of the spirit. Let's read that again. Romans 7, 6, but now we have been delivered from the law, having died to what we were held by. We're dead now to that partner. So the law doesn't apply to us anymore. So so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. So we see two things. The law is an old method. God did give the law. Don't, don't make any mistake here, but the purpose of the law is so in what was it given? That's what should always be on your mind. It's not about is the law a good thing because that will never be an issue. It came from God, and everything that comes from God directly is good. The problem is when it matches with the human flesh that wants to rebel, the sinful human craving. And you see that because now someone is asking if we've been delivered from if the law has no effect, then. Why is, why are we so particular? What's the worry about? What's the fuss about? Why, you know, should we even have, or even more so, the question could be, is the law a bad thing? Which is what Paul begins to break down here. So verse 7, Romans 7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. Ah, so Paul is saying sin is a bad thing. The law is not a bad thing. The law is not sin, but the law shows me what sin is. So I can understand what sin is when I see the law. That's that's the idea. It's like, uh, I'm trying to find the best example, but I think it's, it's very clear. I see what sin and truly is through the lens of without the law, I can't really truly see what sin is, but I know sin is a bad thing. And God hates sin. He hates it so much that he had to do something about it. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So he says, certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, this is, the, this is what's going on here. Sin, taking opportunity by the commandment. So sin is using the law to its its advantage. And he says, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire for apart from the law, sin was dead. Just like I just said, right. I was alive once without the law. When the commandment came, sin revived and I died. So Paul is just about to go into this whole conversation, which we will talk about more next week. Um, but it's something to really think about. Paul is describing helplessness of a man who thinks that he can, through the law, become right with. Him. Paul is saying that it's, it's, it's inconceivable. It's impossible. The law does not save. The law only shows you your weakness. So if, if you see, do not covet, do not steal, do not um, lie, you know, do not bear false. All these commandments where you're not supposed to do something. The the Bible says the strength of sin is the law, 1 Corinthians 15. What the law does is it just strengthens sin in you. And so you have a responsibility to not live under the law. So in other words, don't, don't live your life based on the dictates and instructions and rules and regulations of the law, rather by the spirit, which is what Paul was saying, by the newness of the spirit. What does that look like? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It says, for out of these things or beyond these things, there is no law. There's no law that's not do those things. So God has called us to a new aspect. Here is how we need to live. If you, if you focus on love, if you focus on joy, peace, patience, and not the do not or thou shall not, you tend to live a better, fruitful, more God-glorifying, fruit-bearing life. Praise the name of Jesus that's the idea so Paul rounds up I mean in verse 12 to establish again that the problem is not the problem is not with the law the problem is with and we must realize that the righteousness of God it is the fact that God did what he did that we are no longer condemned is because of what Jesus did on it, that the power of the law is broken and all we have now is a call a a a summons to obey the, the doctrine of righteousness to obey the idea that we can only be saved by what jesus has done it's all about accepting what jesus has to offer not trying to do it your own way so let's read the last verses we'll stop at verse 12 today i go back to verse 10 it says and the commandment which was to bring life found it to bring death for sin taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy. That's such a conclusion. And the commandment is holy and just and good. So next week, we're going to answer a further question Paul posed, which was in verse 13. Paul was like, so something that is good, how is it producing death? Is it producing death to me? That's even another question we can ask. So I think this is a good place to stop. Um, and I hope it makes sense what Paul was doing here, um, showing us the purpose of the, and, um, we're going to see a lot more as we move forward. So let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you because it illuminates our hearts. Thank you because the law and its dominion has been broken. Sin shall not have dominion over us because we are no longer under the law. We are under grace. Grace doesn't, sensuousness, it doesn't mean weakness. Grace actually means trusting in the ability of God and His Spirit to transform our lives. And Lord, that's what we've chosen, that we've put our faith in You. We will not be ashamed. We will not be disappointed. You will raise us up on the last day because You have raised us up already right now by baptism unto Your death. We've been brought in to share in You. We give You praise and. Thank you, Father, for in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.